I would say the thing that I'm most optimistic or excited about is perhaps the return of creativity to advertising. Over the course of the past several years, it's just become this toss it on an algorithm with automated creative, and we're going to performance ourselves into whatever the magic Googles and metas say us to be. And I understand that has a very clear place in what we do, specifically within digital advertising. But that has seeped through into so much of what so many brands have done. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. If you've been a follower of the podcast or Retail Touchpoints, you know that we love a good discussion around top trends and industry predictions. Of course, we always like to hear about what's next, but a big part of the conversation is did these predictions live up to the hype? Well, for today's episode, we are going to dig into some of the hottest trends of 2022 and better yet, dig in to determine whether they really made an impact or whether they were just a bunch of hype. You may have a few ideas of which trends we'll be talking about today, but there are eight key trends that January Digital spotlighted in a report at the top of 2022. So we're going to be digging into those. I have Vic Drabicki, founder of January Digital, on the line with me, as well as Sarah Engel, president of the firm. So we have a very dynamic conversation lined up for you today where we just share our own hot takes and our own experiences and ultimately offer some insights and best practices to help you all navigate this quickly evolving space. All right, Vic, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time out. Since a lot of our conversation today is going to be rooted in trends, predictions, digging into what's hot and what's not. Why don't we set the stage a little bit for our listeners here and get into a little bit about what January Digital does and basically why the work you do is kind of rooted in our conversation today, right? Like digging into the trends and the issues that are top of mind for retailers. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for having us as well. I think we have a unique perspective on things because we both are a media agency and a consultancy. And we both have folks on our staff who you know, are the best of the best when it comes to executing digital media. But we also have about half of our staff who came from running businesses, CEOs, CMOs, heads of digital, heads of marketing, all of those sorts of things. And so that combination of real media experience and knowing tactically what's going on mixed with our consultancy gives us exposure to far more things and gives us a better, more well-rounded look at what the trends are and how we can kind of bring them to light for folks, whether it be our clients or the industry as a whole. We, we tend to share pretty freely of what we see and we try to hold ourselves accountable to see if we were right too. Yeah, I think that accountability is really important or at least giving yourselves a little bit of a gut check. I know we do it on Retail Touchpoints quite a bit because we can cover the trends all day or what everybody's talking about. There is no shortage of buzzy topics that are dominating headlines. But I think there's also a responsibility of kind of taking a step back and being like, "Eh, is this really going to be making an impact on the industry long term, which is obviously top of mind for the folks listening to this right now. And I know at the start of 
2022, you had eight big predictions for the industry. Is that right? So I know there are a few we want to pick on a little bit and poke at a little. So can you share what the eight big, so to speak, were and why they were top of mind for your firm? We definitely can. Why don't we do this? I'll say the eight. I'll go one by one and let Sarah say whether or not we think it actually came true. That way you kind of have that accountability that's so important to what we said would come true. Does that work? Love that. Let's do it. All right. You ready for this, Sarah? You're going to be put on the spot. I'm ready. All right. So our first trend, and this is something that we believe as a consultancy and as an agency is critical for brands, but media mix diversification is absolutely crucial as digital media gets far more expensive. And so drum roll, Sarah, would you say that one came true or not? I would say it's uh, more true now than ever. I think that when we are seeing brands and retailers have great success. It is because they are testing their media mix diversification before they are in a situation where it's critical, right? So right now, heading into the holiday, they are testing, they are trying new means, they're looking at CTV, they're looking at, you know, what does it mean in Pinterest? They're trying to look at other options outside of your traditional meta and Google to make sure that they have enough diversification that when prices increase, in the case that their effectiveness decreases, that they actually have other options. So it's actually more crucial right now than it's ever been. That's great. And I know I personally am super bullish on CTV. I think it is such an interesting trend. There are so many ways for, and I guess different channels, right, for brands to use right now. And just seeing the shift in behaviors from traditional linear TV to streaming and all of the new ad offerings, it just seems like it, it is such a ripe space for innovation and like testing those different formats. So just wanted to share uh, two cents from the peanut gallery there. That's one area that I in particular am watching out for. I think you're spot on with that. And I think one of the things that retail as a whole is guilty of is the past few years is we've performance marketing marketed ourselves to death. We've performance marketed ourselves into this corner. And I think your comment about CTV is so right in that, number one, it's different than your traditional performance media. Two, it tends to have a very clear creative aspect to it, which I think is great for anyone who's looking at their advertising mix. And number three, it's still pretty heavily audience and data driven, which means you're not just blanket targeting folks like traditional TV. So I think your call out is really good. And that's something that we've seen across the board for sure. And I guess maybe that leads a little bit to our second trend that we said, which was social commerce will become a huge marketing focus as more platforms roll out commerce. So Sarah, what do you think? Do we get that one right or wrong? I think we got this one right. And I also think it has changed quite a bit since when we made this prediction in the sense that, yes, you know, Facebook, Instagram remain those platforms where most social commerce transactions are taking place. Pinterest is continuing to invest in their social commerce initiatives. I think that as brands and and advertisers are, again, looking at their media diversification, they've got to determine where is my customer and this feeling of, I have to get them to my site to transact. I have to own this experience. I think this distributed commerce model that's happened over the past few years has put us in a position where more brands are more comfortable with customers transacting where they want to transact to artificially hold up that transaction because you want to control the experience on your site is an outdated way of thinking. The way you have to think about this is how do I make sure that they have the right experience, right brand experience, right product experience, no matter where they are interacting with my brand across social platforms and go ahead and get that transaction right there in the moment. 
Yeah. So I guess my quick follow-up question for both of you is, how do you think all of these platforms are doing in terms of delivering upon that, that payment piece? Because I know whenever we've covered social commerce, it's largely been through the lens of like new advertising offerings, new commerce enabled experiences, which, you know, Sarah, I think you appropriately called out. There are a lot of changes <laughs> happening, I think, as these platforms learn about what consumers want, you know, where their time and attention is gravitating towards. But I always feel like the payment part is always like a little bit hairy for the end customer, meaning me in that case. So, I mean, do we think that payment piece of the puzzle is where it needs to be? for these platforms to fully realize that conversion opportunity and really make it as easy as possible for the shopper right now? Or is that an area to watch? Vic, I'm so interested to hear if we agree on this subject. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Here's what I would say. The payment, from my point of view, I do not believe the payment structure and the way in which that happens. it, It still has too many steps. It is still disjointed a bit. That said, I'm concerned that consumers aren't willing to transact in that space. You certainly have pockets of the market who feel uncomfortable with that. Your younger consumer is absolutely willing to transact in that place. Like the the trust level, whether it's uh, valid or not, the trust level with actually giving up their credit card or connecting their Apple wallet in that format is so high that the technology and the way in which those transactions take place, we need to still remove some friction there, but the willingness is there. Vic, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I agree with you on that, Sarah. <laughs> Whenever we look at trends, we tend to look at them in two general buckets. Is it a consumer-driven trend or is it a tech-driven trend? Sometimes a consumer is saying, I want this, and they're looking for a solution. Other times tech comes up with a solution and they're looking for a problem. And I think in this case, you have exactly what Sarah said. You have consumers who are more than willing and more comfortable to do it than ever, and the tech just hasn't fully caught up yet. And so whenever you have consumers that are anxious to adopt a new way of paying or a new technology. Generally, it's a short amount of time before tech figures it out, finds a way to do it, and that marketplace tends to take off. So I think I actually agree with you, Sarah, although it would have been fun to argue with you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we'll find something to argue about. Wait, wait. So I may have something that will possibly cause some tension here. So Sarah, you brought up Pinterest, and I'm so glad you did because I feel like there's so much attention on what Meta is doing and what TikTok is doing, because those are obviously the big guys and they're kind of chasing each other's tails, which is always funny to see for me personally. But I feel like Pinterest is like behind the scenes, like slowly chipping away. And then with the acquisition of the yes in particular, I'm like, oh, like, what are they working on here? Like, what are they thinking? So is Pinterest kind of the unsung hero in a way of like social commerce because there's like this slow and steady and quietness about I have them? wanted to know the answer to this for the last 10 years. For the last <laughs> 10 years, I feel like Pinterest has a chance. Pinterest has a chance. Yes. And I still constantly feel that way because I think they're onto something that is materially different than other social media platforms, but they haven't quite been able to figure out exactly how to monetize it or exactly what it means to advertisers yet. In pockets they have, but more broadly, they haven't quite been able to figure that out yet. And I think you're exactly right. Their acquisition of the yes, incredibly smart team, really solid technology, great partnerships is a huge step in that direction. But I'd be curious to see what they're actually going to be able to do with it. I continue to be a huge believer in Pinterest and a huge believer that 
they are different enough to offer something that's net new to the industry, but they just haven't quite figured out how to piece it all together yet. I love that point. And it's interesting. Um, you say over the last 10 years, I mean, I have been on the brand side during a lot of that time, advocated for Pinterest, tried it, didn't get the results, advocated, tried it, didn't get the results. And so that said, am I still a huge advocate? I absolutely am because you literally have a, a consumer's passions and preferences. We're not talking about oh, they happen to look at this, they happen to be following this particular influencer. You're talking about they're planning their wedding. They're planning their family's meal for the next week. I mean, these are deeply personal, passionate elements that they are sharing with Pinterest and, and participating, sharing with others through Pinterest. There's so much there. The results have got to follow. And I think that they are doing a much better job. I think the acquisition of the yes, of course, is a great step in that direction. What I would also say is, I think there's a window of time here. Like you said, Vic, for 10 years, we've been We've been all, been all advocating and, and wanting them to, to get there. I think that their time frame is shorter now than it has been. And the reason I say that is I see advertisers using retail media to do what Pinterest is capable of. So they're going around, you know, whether that's Amazon or whether that's Target or Walmart or other folks, they're saying, oh, I can have this kind of creative landing experience. I can be able to acquire, you know, more customers through this channel. They're almost using them in an interchangeable way when they should not be interchangeable. You should be able to have a phenomenal brand experience, be able to communicate anything from company mission to product attributes within Pinterest. And I actually see this window where they're trade because they're not able to get the results in Pinterest, they're trading out. So that's kind of what I'm watching for to see in the case that Pinterest can't really show those results in, in like, let's say the next year, 18 months, I do see some trade out or at least mental trade out happening. So I'm going to keep a close eye on that as well. Very interesting. All right. So that's number two. <laughs> Guys, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna make to, it. We're we gonna lightning round. We're gonna lightning round these next few, we Sarah. Are, are you are. ready? Okay, I'm ready. I think I'm gonna say this one. I think the next one is still TBD. Almost like we got it a little bit wrong, but it's finally the year of live stream shopping. Thumbs up, thumbs down on live stream shopping. I would love for it to be a thumbs up, and I don't believe it is because I would say the way in which we go about it has changed. We thought, ah, oh, TikTok's gonna figure it out, and Instagram's gonna figure it out, and that is how we are going to because the audience is already there. That is how we're going to go about it. TikTok halted their plans to bring live stream e-commerce to the US and Europe, right? So that has changed significantly over the past few months. The positive here is you have actual tech providers, people like Firework, other folks like that, who are able to provide a live stream shopping experience. So rather than people, rather than advertisers relying on the social networks, they're relying on tech providers who have finally gotten the tech right. Again, I think that's a process. I think we got it wrong to say it's actually going to, you know, magically transform retail. This year, I think within, by 2024, we'll be there. All right. Number four, personalization and loyalty programs are once again relevant. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a different conversation. The conversation is I've spent so much money and so much time and focus on new customer acquisition, and I'm letting them just sift out through this leaky bucket because I don't have my retention efforts right. I don't have my loyalty strategies right. I kind of almost took for granted, if I'm an advertiser, maybe I kind of took for granted that my top 20% of my customers were going to float me during COVID. And when, when things were in such disarray, now we're in a situation where everybody's saying, I have to make sure that I am retaining these customers. I cannot continue to spend after new customer acquisition 
and not be under better understanding and better servicing my current customers. This is one that makes me laugh so much because if you look at the last decade, especially well-backed new retail brands have had this magical metric of CAC, cost per acquisition. The only thing they cared about was CAC over and over and over again to the detriment of retaining their existing customers. It was, yeah, we'll do some basics and keep them around. But the cost for acquiring a new customer is so exponentially large in comparison to keeping an existing customer there that it's pretty easy. And there are plenty of examples to where you saw folks get their their finances out of whack. I just, I, I firmly believe that if we took just a small amount of the money we're spending on marketing and spent it instead on keeping our current customers happy, the dividends are much larger. I would give a quick advice to your listeners too, Alicia, because if anybody in your organization can't answer the question, what is the uh, lifetime value of our top 20%, what do they buy, how do they buy, if they cannot answer those questions, you've got to dig in deeper. And there are many, many organizations where they still don't understand those answers. So just start there. Just start at your top 20%, work your way through the process, work your way through, okay, customers who behave in the same way, who come in through promotions, how do we get them to full, full price customers? If anybody can't answer that question, you need to pause and figure that answer out. Right, because that data already exists, right? Like they have that. They're just focusing on the wrong things, it seems. I want to share a story on this because what you said is right, Sarah. And I think what happens is people immediately overcomplicate what programs like this mean. And don't get me wrong, there is an absolute huge need for tech and the data behind it and all of those sorts of things. But I think one of the things that people get wrong when it comes to loyalty programs is thoughtfulness. I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to call Wayfair out of all people of doing something pretty incredible. This was last year, I believe it was. My wife owns an interior design firm. Uh, This might have even been 2020, owns an interior design firm. And she happened to be working on a few projects in the middle of 2020. And at the end of the year, they simply sent her a box of flowers that said, thank you for sticking with us through this time. There's no way my wife is a top 20% customer for Wayfair given their size and all of those sorts of things. But that amount of thoughtfulness still pays off right now. Whenever she talks to clients about why do you shop there, they were thoughtful to her. They recognized her in that way. So I think without a doubt, you need to have the data and the tech infrastructure to be there, but make sure your loyalty programs don't miss out on thoughtfulness as well. Yeah, I think that that's very much an overlooked opportunity. I mean, I always go back to the Chewy example. Like they have this full context of a lifespan of a very powerful relationship that the consumer, the pet parent, meaning, has with their pet. And when there is, sadly, a death, they send flowers, they send a card, and it creates that moment that's just like, oh, okay, this is not a opportunity to try and get more purchases, right? Because obviously that's not likely going to be the case anymore, but it's them putting that thought and care into that relationship that span months, years, decades in some cases, right? And I think it's just such a powerful and poignant example of like how loyalty opportunities can rest in so many different pockets of that customer experience. And it's not really tied to a program, right? Like it's just that data. You're so unbelievably right on that. How many loyalty programs are simply an incentive to get you to buy more? Hey, it's free shipping and returns. Yeah, I want that as a customer, but I also deserve that as a customer. What loyalty program is giving you something that is a surprise, that is a delight, that is still economically feasible, operationally feasible for your organization? 
great example with Chewy. Absolutely. All right. We got another tangent. I have more questions about this later, but let's keep okay. going. We're almost there. We'll come back to it. This one, <laughs> I, I'm going to take number five on both reading it and answering it because I'm Go a huge it. nerd. And it was collecting first and zero party data is the way to survive the cookie-less future. I give us a decidedly yes, maybe. And the reason I say yes, maybe is without a doubt, marketing is driven much more by first party data than it ever has been. But I'm just not so sure that the future is as cookie-less as we all thought it might be. How do you feel about that one, Sarah? Not as quickly as we thought it would be either, right? The goal line keeps moving. I am seeing some really creative ways in which advertisers are interacting with their customers to get to that data in a, and again, just to our last conversation in a thoughtful way, it's a new customer and kind of onboarding them in a thoughtful way with customer preferences and personalization options. It's making sure that they have access. I look at the what is happening right now with this, almost this kind of threat of cookie-less future has actually sped us up significantly. The reality of the cookie-less future hasn't arrived yet. It's amazing how quickly the rollout for cookies gets pushed back when the entire business model of so much of digital marketing is based on cookies. <laughs> I don't know. Coincidence, I'm not sure. Go figure. Uh, Coincidence. <laughs> Go figure. Uh, number six, quick delivery and painless returns are an absolute customer expectation. And finding quicker, easier ways to do that is, is the press for the future. I'd say this is decidedly yes, despite several of these uber quick delivery services hitting a rough patch this year. Sarah? Yeah, I agree with you. What I would say right now, you know, in 2020, 2021, most companies needed to rush after this, right? Their stores were closed. They were having delivery issues. Their warehouses may even be closed as they had COVID concerns. They had to really rush after this. I think what I'm seeing this year more than ever is people pausing to say, does my customer actually expect it in 15 minutes? Or will tonight or tomorrow morning do? Like they are pausing to protect their margin. I think that's been the biggest impact here, right? If you're trying to get to 15 minute delivery, the impact of that on your margin is significant. So healthy organizations right now are pausing to say, I, I you know, I went down whether it curbside pickup, quick delivery, free returns, all of these, all these elements. Free returns, by the way, is not going anywhere. There's a couple, <laughs> there's a couple of apparel brands who have gone the other way and are charging for returns that I do not believe that's going to be successful. It's not in the best interest of the customer. However, I see successful companies right now, and by successful, I mean those that are actually making their margin goals, stopping to say, it's not what my what I felt like I needed to do during COVID. It's not what my competitors are doing. What does my customer care about right now? Do they need 15-minute delivery? Or again, will tomorrow morning do? So I think that's the process that brands need to go through right now. Believe it or not, guys, we only have two trends left. Yes. Uh, <laughs> number seven, customers will embrace purpose and demand sustainability. This is one that I wish had happened more, but I feel somewhat like the cookie-less future it's going to happen, but in smaller pieces over a longer period of time. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I, I have so many thoughts. We can, we can fill up a whole podcast with this. But I think three or four years ago, we thought the customer is going to demand it. The customer is going to demand. They are so thoughtful. They are so much better informed than they have ever been. They are going to demand it. Certainly that happens in pockets. It certainly happens with our youngest consumers. However, what I, I hear repeatedly from, you know, whether it's fashion, whether it's CPG, is that, yes, they do care about your purpose. They do care about your sustainability. And also, it needs to be less expensive. And also, it needs to be a better experience. So when it comes down to it, how people will answer a poll, how consumers will answer a poll about what they care about and how they will spend are often two different things. 
that could be disheartening. But what I would say is it takes a longer term view of that. Companies have to know what they stand for. Consumers have more access to information than they have ever had. They know if A, you're bluffing and you've just come up with some purpose that you want to stand by. We just saw it last week as it pertained to... um, pertain to some of the apparel brands and all of a sudden saying they were going to be sustainable and, and hiring on Kardashians to help them with that, right? People, consumers can absolutely see through that. So it's got to be the long term. Where is that kind of intersection between what my company genuinely stands for, what my consumers care about deeply and are willing to pay for? Nobody wants to talk about that part, but are willing to pay for and what my employees care about. There's been so many examples over the past few years of You had the consumer part right, you had the company part right, and your employees were not treated the way they needed to be treated, or it wasn't authentic with your employees. And that's where you have them going public and saying, this isn't what the company stands for. And that really is a black mark on the company. So I would say it's those three things, company purpose, employee focus, where your customer passion is. Yeah. Anytime you have something that's a value base, there's always going to be a trade-off, right? If you want to be more sustainable, you have a trade-off, whether it be of price or potential quality or whatever it might be. And whenever you fluctuate between your values, I want to be sustainable, but then I'm going to go do the Kardashians. Oh no, it's going to be this, that. Customers see that and that's the thing that kills you. When you can't stick to your values, you sort of lose all ability to be trusted. And, and it only took us about 30 minutes to get here, guys. But trend number eight, I'm going to take this one full force because I have a very hot opinion on this. Our trade trend was that people would dive into the metaverse And a few months ago, I was at an NRF conference and we were discussing the metaverse. And what happened after about 30 minutes is a group of CMOs for retail brands. We ended up going, I don't know that any of us can even all define the metaverse the same way. And if Facebook wasn't just completely getting routed with everything else that's going on and Mark Zuckerberg hadn't mentioned the metaverse, would we even be talking about it? And pretty decidedly, the entire room said, probably not. There is some version of the metaverse in the future and and whatever and however we want to define that. Clearly, there are things like Roblox and, and that sort that make a ton of sense. But by the time it gets to being more mainstream, we're still talking a half a decade to a decade away. And so it's one of those things that you kind of keep an eye on, but you know that it's a quarter of a percent to a half a percent of your business and likely not something that in the near future is going to be one, two or five percent of your business. But again, hot take. So (laughs) yeah, I do agree with you. Are we there? No, we're not there from a consumer perspective. And if the consumers are not there, if the market is not there, it's going to be very difficult for a CMO to continue to justify spending a lot of money after this. That said, I see some initial findings, some initial examples. First, I'll say the negative, then I'll say the positive. The negative was early in this year when we made this prediction, I mean, brands were just rushing after this. And you would ask them, who in your organization owns the concept of the metaverse? Nobody knew what the answer was. Is it the CMO, chief digital officer? Nobody knew. Why are you doing this? They didn't have defined outcomes. Oh, it's because somebody on the board read an article somewhere and said, we have to do it. Right. It just was really ill-defined. And I think that that created some pretty negative experiences, both for advertisers and consumers. So that's the negative. The positive is where I am seeing some pockets of interest, I'm not going to say success, but like glimmers of hope, is when you're talking about scarcity, the luxury brands, especially luxury apparel, are doing some really interesting things in the metaverse where there's scarcity, where you can, it is something that you collect in the same way that gamers have been collecting skins and collecting different tokens for a long time. That's really interesting. And then the next thing I see coming 
is around community and co-creation. Again, it's a very small subset of the market, but there is the capability to co-create in this metaverse where the consumer says, oh, I want it to be this color and I want it to, you know, a handbag. I want it to have this handle and I want it to look like this. And they actually have some ownership in that, literally sometimes ownership in an NFT that they're actually making money off of, sometimes just, you know, the pride of of ownership of creating that. So I think that those are the two kind of interesting case studies are our uh, friends and, and technology leaders over at Afterpay, they've done some really cool work during New York Fashion Week. They actually had multiple designers where they released NFTs. They actually had metaverse experiences integrated with their runway shows. There are some interesting examples happening. It is by no means does it need to be the top priority for most marketers or most organizations? Yeah, I think when the people who are actually in the space and creating gaming platforms are in Web3 and are studying what decentralization really means and the technology that's required to like power all of this, when they say we are not there yet, then maybe retail should listen a little bit. I always think of all the things you have to worry about as a retailer from materials to shipping to sizing, to colors, to all those things. If you could list all of your priorities and all of your areas of expertise, where on that list would the metaverse fall? Right. right. It's pretty far exactly. down the list, guys. Exactly. Well, I think this is the case, like, it's the long view, right? And it's ensuring that there is a strategic alignment with your brand purpose, which I know it sounds silly, like, oh, like a Roblox game, my brand purpose. But like, there are really, I think, powerful examples of like Puma, for example, Nike, when like their heritage, the heritage of their brands are tied to action and sports and community driven through games. And like, it just like makes sense for the brand. You know what I mean? So I think that is a really seamless tie in and they allow people to dress their their avatars or their players in Puma products that already exist. So there's that digital physical play. So again, this is solely contextual based on that specific brand. And it shouldn't be something that people can just simply copy and paste. And it just makes sense for that business too. Like, I feel like it's so nuanced and like someone should be in control of like identifying those pockets of opportunity and strategizing, building out the vision for those tests. But it's not where I think it's an all or nothing or all in type scenario. Yeah. You know, Alicia, this is just fresh on my mind. I just literally was speaking with her yesterday at grocery shop, but the president of L'Oreal. And that's a really good example because what she said was they're not, it's not like every brand, you know, in their portfolio is going after the metaverse, but they have really good examples where it is very brand right. So NYX, one of their brands created during Pride Month, launched all of these avatars and they launched this metaverse experience where it was genuinely inclusive. You could tailor your avatar to any sexual orientation, any skin tone. I mean, yes, there was a makeup element to it, any gender, any, any gender identity. It was completely integrated with the way that they see the world and the way in which they kind of come to market and show up. And so that made a lot of sense for that part of their organization where it might not make sense for other parts of the organization. And I think that's a a prime example of knowing where your strengths are, knowing what you need to go after. And Vic, from your point, what are your top 10 priorities and should this be there? At the beginning of the year, when we made the predictions, everybody had somebody in their organization saying, we have to get after this. I think that trough of disillusionment happened pretty quickly. Yeah. And I think another brand that does a really great job of like towing that line between 
pushing the limits, testing these new methods or channels, you know, or ways to get in front of their audience is Rebecca Minkoff. So they've done these very thoughtful, incremental tests and and ventures. And what I didn't know, and, and I've uncovered it through some research, is that they had this whole line with Crypto Fashion Week. And, you know, there was a runway show and like items were for sale so you could dress your avatars. But when they got into the why behind it, I was like, oh, this actually makes so much sense. Because when you dress avatars, the physics of design, so to speak, don't exist, right? It's all digital. So being able to bring the Rebecca Minkoff brand and create a vision to the next level through the internet and, you know, being able to play with different materials and finishes and metals. Like they had a lot of hardware (laughs) in a lot of their designs. And she was like, I can't do this in the physical realm because my models will topple over and they won't be able to carry it. (laughs) So like, this is a way of bringing my brand to the next level. I was like, oh, this actually makes a lot of sense. And for people who love Rebecca Minkoff or love digital fashion, like this makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And that's such a great example. I I love what they're doing. I think Uri and and Rebecca are such smart people. They also are one of the first to say, we're going to create this as an NFT. You can co-create it and you will actually earn money if other people buy this NFT. I mean, you're actually creating an economy and they're using it almost as a deep integrated loyalty play that those folks who have created NFTs will actually get money back on it. They will actually also be in a situation where they'll get early access to products. They'll be, you know, they'll ask them for their perspective. So it's funny. I just have to point out, we all just said, it's not there. (laughs) But then we're like, but this (laughs) example, but that example. Creative. Exactly. Exactly. So um, I, I think the excitement is there. The reality and payoff isn't quite there yet. But if I had to say that there was a trend for next year, I mean, I'm not saying we're going to do another trends release at the beginning of 2023, but I would say the thing that I'm most optimistic or excited about is perhaps the return of creativity to advertising. Yes. Over the course Mm -hmm. of the past (laughs) several years, it's just become this toss it on an algorithm with automated creative, and we're going to performance ourselves into whatever the magic Googles and metas say us to be. And I understand that has a very clear place in what we do specifically within digital advertising. But that has seeped through into so much of what so many brands have done. Clearly, there's still folks out there and you can lift off, list off examples of people doing great things. But I'm excited at the idea that we have to, creative is put more front and center as we move forward. And that creative is probably the driver of success. So I don't want to say we'll have that on our list, but I'm certainly hopeful that's on our list for 2023. I totally agree with you. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, some of the creative things that we're seeing happening right now and, and the acknowledgement that you have to create compelling content, that you have to co-create products or content with your customers. I mean, that is exciting to me what, what they could like you say, just performance market the heck out of it for the past few years. Now it's like you you better get back to some creativity and to some authenticity or, or you're not gonna you're not gonna make it to the finish line with your customers. I completely agree with you. Yeah, I guess that kind of leads me to ask this follow-up question for you guys because I have always been a firm believer, obviously, in in my role, in my job, that the role of creativity, the role of being able to make the case for testing, for just putting something out to market and seeing how it performs. Like, you don't know unless you do it. And if if anything, you get that opportunity to be the first to try this or, or push, you know, your creativity to the next level. But do you feel like, especially given 
the focus on profitability and, you know, getting finances in check and all of the different functions within a retail organization to prove the value and impact of the work they're doing, especially marketers, right? Because everyone thinks that they're just like finger painting all day, which is very frustrating. So like, how do you encourage that balance to be hit, right? Because you don't stand out, you don't, you can't be the first to market unless there is a backing within the organization for that creativity, but also the CFO is like, hey, CMO, like what has been the profitable return on these campaigns and all of these channels? And like, can you show me the the financial impact on all of this? So is this going to be a tension point that is just going to have to play out or, or is there a way that they can strike that balance? I feel like it's a boring answer. And then I'll hand to you, Vic. I feel like it's a boring answer, but it's the infrastructure for testing that everybody agrees to that'll actually lead to a positive outcome. It is. We all agree what the outcome is going to be from the beginning. It is X percent of the budget's going to go there. That's where I see the most success, where there's a agreed infrastructure for testing. Because then creative people can run wild within that context, right? But Vic, I know that we uh, we work a lot within testing with our clients, so go for it. Yeah, I mean, this is something that we ask whenever someone comes and asks us to possibly work them or vice versa. This is something we suss out very specifically up front. And we say, what is your desire to test? And guess what? Everyone says, yep, we want to test. We want to do the best things. Go, Amazing. That's great. You and everyone else does. Okay. What percentage of your budget would you be willing to test with where you had no expected result? And all of a sudden the rooms get super, super quiet. <laughs> and uncomfortable. Because here's the thing, <laughs> like, everyone, this is awkward. Everyone, everyone wants to try great things and that's amazing. But guess what? When you're doing first to market things, you're trying brand new things, the percentage of success is very low. And so we want to test people in the way, we want to press people in the way to say, are you willing to test with the expectation of failure other than learning? And when you find an organization from the CMO, CFO, everyone, CEO, all the way down, who's fully aligned with saying, I am willing to test with the expectation only being learning and not a business impact, that tends to be the organizations that do the best, most innovative, early adopting things. Now, some brands might use only 2 or 3% of their budget on that, and others might use 10%. But in either of those scenarios, that client, that brand ends up being in a better spot than the person who said, I'm willing to test two more pieces of creative on Facebook if it gives me a $5 ROI. That actually doesn't materially change your business. So that's something we really try to suss out with all of our clients. And we hold ourselves and our existing partners accountable to having that mentality. No, that's great. So I guess that the next question there is, creating this infrastructure for testing, for experimenting, but like the balance of own channels versus paid channels, or like, I guess you could say like rented land, quote unquote, right? Because like we were talking about like social commerce and the use of all of these different platforms where commerce opportunities could happen. But then like, I always think back to like when Instagram went down and like everybody started panicking, right? Because all of this time and attention is being put into these spaces, into these watering holes, so to speak, where all of their consumers are and there wasn't a seamless connecting point, right? So like what recommendations would you have for brands and retailers that do want to test these new experiences and, and commerce channels, but also want to make sure that like their websites and their e-commerce experiences 
are immersive enough to to strike that balance and become destinations for people where they want to share their data, they want to actively engage. I mean, is there a firm answer or a firm way to think about this puzzle? Because I could imagine like with the popularity of TikTok, for example, everyone wants to put all, all the time and attention on this, but you can't stray from the core, right? So do you have any recommendations there? Can I give you the absolutely terrible non-answer? Lay okay? it on me. Does it, is it, <laughs> does it depend? <laughs> Those are your favorite, right, Alicia? <laughs> it totally depends. Like, yeah. the, the thing that I would say is if you have a list of 15 things you want to test, then you have a list of zero. You just will never be able to get to all those things. And the other thing I would say is if you have something you want to test and you have a time frame of testing it of less than a month or trying it one time, you're not testing. And so what I would always say to people is that your ability to succeed in testing is directly proportional to the amount of time, energy, and money you're willing to put into it. And so what I would say is don't choose 50 things to test. Choose three or four and go at them for extended period of time learn, iterate, learn, iterate, learn, iterate, then figure out if it works. And going all the way back to the beginning when we talked about Pinterest, I think this is the, the challenge people have with Pinterest is what you described, Sarah, which is I advocated for it, I tested it, didn't get it, advocated, tested, didn't get it. And you kept going through that process. And so then now after you've done that for a while, you go, okay, I'm not going to do it anymore. But if you try to test things just one time and hope that it works or doesn't or determine something is working or not working based on one small test, you're probably looking at it a little too short. Totally agree with you. I think the um, only thing I'd add is where I've seen the biggest mishaps, and I kind of mentioned it earlier, is misalignment on what good looks like. Is So if the outcome is supposed to be, we want to test the creativity available. We want to test to see how our customers respond as opposed to we want this exact measure of ROI. You have to align up front on that because that's the fastest way to get to these tests shut down is for one person, you know, one marketer to say, yes, this was successful because we got this interesting insight from our customer and the CFO to say, nope, you didn't get the ROI. It didn't work. So that's the only thing I would, would add there is like test and iterate, test and iterate, make sure that everybody agrees on what you're actually testing and that you pause to determine, is it working? Yes or no, by what measure, and then iterate forward fast. Oh, that's great. And we talked a little bit that you brought up how, you know, you're hoping that creativity is going to really come to the forefront as we think about 2023. But are there any other trends that are brewing, just starting to emerge that you think will have a really big impact on 2023? I mean, it's been a really interesting sight to see the balance of new engagement channels versus like the core of retail, meaning like the infrastructure, like the fulfillment experience, the operational side of things. So I think It'll be interesting to see how like that balance continues, but is there anything else, new tech, new channels that you guys are focusing on or keeping a close eye on? I'll give you one macro and one micro, if that's okay. On the macro side, you saw this and you felt it at Fashion Week last week, but everyone has been locked up in their houses for the last two years and has slowly been coming back. Everyone is looking for someone to tell them how to dress or what's cool or how to look. Everyone is looking for that right now. And I think the brand that can tap into that and really see that and kind of own that is going to make a pretty big impact on retail as a whole. And if you go back and you think of the, the housing crisis so many years ago, J. Crew was the brand that did it then. If you remember, everything was doom and gloom and all of a sudden here comes Jenna Line with uh, highlighter pink and yellow colors. And it just brought life to the world. And so I'm really curious to just watch that from a fashion trend to see what happens. On the micro side, I think there are two things that will happen. I think diversification is going to continue 
to happen, just as we said this year. Digital media is not getting cheaper. Performance media, specifically around Facebook, is not working, or excuse me, Meta is not working as well as it used to. So we're going to continue to see diversification there. And then on the tech side, I don't know if this one's going to come true yet or not, but generally whenever an economy slows down, marketing dollars get cut. And one of the trends that we're seeing is rather than cutting marketing dollars, we're starting to see a little bit of a reallocation to things like improving website performance, improving loyalty programs, improving the customer experience. People are willing to spend endless amounts of money to market and get people to their site, but people tend to spend tiny amounts of money comparatively on making their website convert better, be a better experience, better better customer service and all that. And so we're seeing some shoots of people saying, let's not just throw more money into the Google and Meta pit. Let's stop and let's try to be more thoughtful internally, which I think is a really good trend. And I'd be curious, I'm very anxious to see if it catches on or not. But Sarah, what, what are you seeing? Yeah, the fact that we're talking about retention and conversion optimization, I feel like that trend should have been happening for the past few years. And I am also excited to see that folks are taking that seriously because it's their own real estate and, and it's their own customer. So outside of that, I would say I'm seeing some interesting things happen in kind of the creator and content world. You know, the way in which influencers or content creators have been used is changing so much. It is not a, here's a fashion creator and I am a fashion brand and I'm going to have them promote it. It's no, here's a wellness influencer who talks about their family and they really have the hearts and minds of their followers and they are going to integrate with me and actually give me product feedback along the way. Like there's a lot happening in that regard. And I think related to that. It's funny, nobody wants to talk, again, maybe a sexy uh, conversation is not affiliates, but I do think that the affiliate aspect of how you reach new audiences is going to be important in the next few years, maybe not in a traditional affiliate model, but in a new way. The last thing I would say is, you know, retail marketplaces and retail media, I think that it is such a big point of conversation right now. Every retailer wants to sell everything to other retailers. So uh, we're in an interesting an interesting time in that regard. It's a matter of, of how people control that experience and create the best path forward. I'm trying to think if there's anything else hot. I mean, the only other thing I'd say that I'm excited about personally is seeing some startups and some tech providers create better solutions than what retailers can build in-house. Whether it was originally, you know, your point of sale system, why would you build that in-house when you actually have the ability to utilize this tech solution who it is their absolute expertise? Vic said earlier, make a list of your priorities, make a list of your expertise. There are so many new tech vendors coming up that have the ability to anything from inventory control to live streaming for our earlier conversation. That is exciting to me. There's some startups have made some massive progress in the past three years. And I think it puts retailers in a position where they do not have to create everything from scratch. Resale economy, right? Um, You know, payment methods. There are a lot of really exciting tech vendors coming up right now. Agree 100%. And I can't even believe it that we are already at like 50 minutes of our time together. I feel like we can go on and on unpacking all of these trends. But sadly, that is all the time we have for now. But before I let you both go, are there any closing thoughts, takeaways, recommendations for the folks listening right now? I feel like we had some good nuggets here throughout our conversation around testing, creating that culture that encourages testing and and seeing which channels really rise to the top in terms of customer experience, data usage, loyalty programs, so much more. But any, any closing thoughts? 
I have just one, and that is, the best time to try new things is when others are in retreat. As the economy has sort of rebalanced itself and people aren't sure where the future is, the natural tendency for people to do is to pull their marketing dollars back, get more conservative, cut every last penny here or there. But whenever the majority of the market does that, that leaves an opportunity for anyone else to go in and sort of cheaply disrupt or cheaply test. So I'd encourage people to be responsible always, but look for those opportunities where maybe your competitive set has gotten more conservative and you have a chance to kind of sneak in a little bit. That's the one thing I always love about whenever things get tough, you get to see who is who is actually still willing to go out and take chances. So maybe that'd be my last one. Man, I love that. I love that. And Alicia, thank you so much for having us. This has been really fun. We could talk to you all day long, but we really appreciate you having us. The only last thing I'd say is the networks between retailers, between experts, tap into that group right now. Like I, I know that that is an element that I think so many, so many folks have undervalued over the past few years. Again, you know, it, retail executives have been disconnected too. They've also been in their homes. Get out there, have these conversations, make sure that you're really tapping into your truth tellers in the industry, and then look at your team and say, what is our customer wanting? What is our organization set up for? What do we not have the expertise? Let's go find it from tech providers, from consultants, whatever that means. Just be honest with yourself and make sure that you're bringing in the right folks to, to tackle each of these issues. Preach, Sarah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's been really... We do this ourselves. <laughs> it's been really great. I, I mean, honestly, I've been covering retail for 11 years now, and it's been really interesting to see the evolution of just the broader community. Like I know when we first started, there was always that us versus them type mindset in some sort of way, like especially with direct competitors, right? But over the past two to three years in particular, there's really been this embracing of community, this nurturing feeling of like, okay, we're all in the same boat here. So like, let's share stories, let's find ways to partner, let's make recommendations of other solutions that are out there and ones that worked well for us. So it's really created, I think, a more positive dynamic around tackling some of these bigger issues like sustainability, for example, that really do require all hands on deck. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Sarah, Vic, thank you again so much for taking the time out and for your back and forth and digging into these trends with me. It's always fun to just have an open dialogue about what we're seeing in the space, what works, and, and of course, what doesn't. So thank you again so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. And to all of you, hopefully this sparked some follow-up questions for all of you. We would love to hear from you. We would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and you know any follow-up questions for Sarah and Vic, definitely drop us a line on Twitter. We are at our touch points there or on LinkedIn at Retail Touchpoints, and we will be sure to tag Sarah and Vic so they are involved in the conversation. And of course, if you have any feedback for us on this episode or the series as a whole, leave us a rating or review on your preferred podcast player. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, frankly, anywhere else, we are likely there. And be sure to subscribe. We have new episodes coming to you every week, and you will get the latest and greatest content delivered right to your device. But for now, that's it from us, everyone. We'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up. <laughs>